I think one of the most important things that we can be doing during this, this time um, is to be praying and uh, to be bringing our requests to God, our worries to God, but also uh, bringing the concerns that we have for other people and the things that people are suffering through. Um, I think it's going to make a big difference, and hopefully it's going to grow our own prayer life and our relationship with God. So even though uh, this weekend we're continuing with our series on the Sermon on the Mount that we've been doing for several weeks now, uh, what Jesus says in the passage that we have scheduled for today is applicable, I mean completely applicable to what we're going to be talking about or what we're going through in uh, this age of coronavirus. If you're watching this uh, as a recording, you might want to pause right now and download the outline uh, that, um, if that's helpful for you to have an outline. Those of you who are watching live, there should be a link uh, on your Facebook page where that is, and you can download the outline as well. So today we're talking about finding and living a better story in times of crisis. And we're doing that as we dig into Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 27. Sermon on the Mount runs from Matthew chapter 5 all the way through the end of chapter 7. So we're coming to the end of Jesus' sermon. And I'm going to put the scripture today, which is from the New International Version, I'm going to put it on the screen uh, because some of you may not have quick access to a Bible or you may be watching on the same screen that you use as a Bible. So we'll have those on the screen as well. Jesus, in our passage today, he tells two, two stories, two stories about two contrasting people. In each story, there's a set of people, two people, and each one is being contrasted. It's Jesus' conclusion to his sermon. Two people in each of this story, and on the outside, as you look at these two people, they, they actually look a lot alike. They could be, in many ways, identical. But in actuality, Jesus says they are very, very different. One, is, one of those people is in those stories, one of those people is building his or her life on something that lasts, on a firm and eternal foundation. And the other one is not. That's where the contrast is in each one of these stories. On the outside, they look almost identical. And both could be people that you would look at from the outside and say, these are good people. But the reality is, Jesus says, is you can be good people and at the same time lack the kind of life and the kind of relationship with God and the kind of foundation to life that Jesus teaches about in the Sermon on the Mount. In his book on the Sermon on the Mount, James Bryan Smith tells two stories of two men who on the outside look very similar. I think most people would call these people wildly successful people. And probably watching from the outside, everybody would say they are, they're good people. But they are, in actuality, very different. I'm going to start with one of Smith's stories, and then I'm going to shift over to Jesus's stories. And then we're going to spend a little bit of time uh, talking uh, or reflecting about what the stories that Jesus is telling us, what they have to say to our situation right now in the crisis that we're all in. Smith's stories are about two men. Both are born in 1910. The first man he met while he was working as a summer intern, uh, chaplaincy in a retirement center. The man was named Ben Jacobs, and he had requested a meeting with the chaplain. And so he 
took the meeting and went and met with him. He was a man in his mid-70s at the time, maybe even to late 70s. And in their first meeting, Smith says, Jacobs did most of the talking. And he talked about philosophy and religion, but he talked about it in kind of a, a surfacey level or what you might say is an academic level. It wasn't personal. It wasn't about what really what he believed. It was more talking about, you know, what are some of the philosophies that are out there, that sort of thing. But over time, Smith and Jacobs continued to meet almost daily, and little by little, Ben Jacobs' story came out. Jacobs had made his first million at the age of 25 in 1935. Now think about this. That's a million dollars in 1935. That is a lot of money. 20 years later, at the age of 45, he was the richest man in his state. He was well-connected in business and political circles. He had a simple motto, he said. It was take all you can from whomever you can. And he was, he was good at it. People were impressed by him, and he wielded a lot of power. But now, looking back on his life, it was filled with a lot of regrets. He had been married three times, and as he put it, all of them left me because of neglect or because they caught me in one of my many affairs. He had one daughter who was in her 40s. She would no longer speak with him. He paused and he looked at Smith, kind of... Uh, gauging what Smith was thinking, maybe thinking that Smith was going to this young chaplain was going to maybe be very judgmental or be judging him. And Smith says, I wasn't judging him. I was just stunned. Uh, he looked so grandfatherly in his cardigan sweater. He looked nothing like the kind of person he was describing. Then Jacobs went on. He said, I suppose you could say that I ruined my life because today I have nothing, really. I still have a lot of money. I still have more money than I can ever spend. But that brings me no joy. I sit here each day waiting to die. I have nothing but bad memories. I cared about no one in my life, and no one cares about me. You, young man, are all I have. There's a question that we ask here at Five Oaks a lot, and it has to do with story. Uh, the question is, what's the story that you inhabit in your own mind? What's the story that's going on? You have a story, you have characters going in your mind, the people that are around you, yourself. You're a character in that story. What is the story that is real, that is imagined in your mind that you're living in? And by story, I mean, what is life really about for you? And so your story answers questions like, um, in your mind and imagination, where is everything headed? Uh, is there more to life than this, the things we can you know, touch, feel, taste, that sort of thing? Your story answers the question, where and in what is the source of true happiness? Because we're all searching for happiness. And what story, in the story that's playing in your mind, what does it tell you about what's really important, what's really meaningful, and what is most fulfilling in life? I hope that makes sense. It's sometimes difficult to communicate this idea of a story. It's like trying to explain to a fish that they live in water. <laughs> We're trying to expect, explain to a human that there's air all around them. I mean, we understand that, but do we think about it? Do we even really get that we live, you know, in, in this air? We rarely reflect on that, and we rarely reflect on the story that is in our minds, that is unfolding in our minds. 
that's telling us what's important in our minds. We may not even be aware that we have a story that we're living in and that we're living toward in our minds. One of the potential upsides of what's happening right now in our world is that we might actually have time to reflect. Now, I, I know not everyone has had a whole lot of time to reflect. I know that uh, I've probably been as busy as any time, and I've talked to some people who say they're working way more hours than they did before. But even if we have time to reflect, there's always the distractions, there's the video games, the, there's YouTube, there's TikTok, there's Netflix, there's Disney, right? I mean, these are things that we oftentimes turn toward to get our minds off of what's actually happening instead of reflecting on what's actually happening. But maybe we're also reflecting more on our story. It's an opportunity for that. So Jesus tells two stories. And here's the first story. In Matthew chapter 7, beginning in verse 21, here's what he says. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So that's the teaching, but here's the story. Many of you will say to me on that day, the, um, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Now, in that passage, when it says on that day, what it's talking about in verse 22, it's talking about judgment day, sort of saying. Jesus actually talks a lot about judgment day in his teaching. And he talks about what's going to happen on judgment day, which is that there's going to be a sort of sorting that is going to be taking place. And the sorting out of things is always going to be based on the trajectory of a person's life. So a life lived for self, a life lived apart from a relationship with God because it didn't want a relationship with God, will get for eternity what they always wanted in the finite. We get for eternity what we wanted right now. And if we didn't want God in our lives, we don't get God for eternity. We get a life that we want, the life without God. Presumably, in the story that Jesus just told, kind of looking into the future of this conversation that's going to be taking place, the picture you have is of a group of people who apparently have found out they're not going to enter into the kingdom of heaven, and they're defending themselves. And that's why they're trying to show their credentials, and they're not just showing their credentials, they're trying to, uh, they're, they're speaking with a, like a sense of incredulity. It's like, didn't we do all these things for you? How could it be that we're not going into heaven? But they are, uh, by most measures, these are religious, especially religious measures, these are really good people. They believed in God in this life. They refer to Jesus, the judge in this story, they refer to him by a title that can mean sir, Lord, sir. But in this context, almost surely shows they believe that he is Lord, meaning God. He is God the Son. So they seem to have the right theology. The repetition of the title, Lord, 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 you know, it's repeated twice. In that culture, usually implies a certain amount of emotional intensity. So they would seem to be people who are serious and religiously devoted in their lives. And apparently they are involved in a 
great amount of, of ministry. I mean, they mentioned prophesying, which means proclaiming God's Word. Uh, they've preached, uh, in a sense, uh, probably sometimes maybe formally, some of them informally by proclaiming God's Word. And they even mentioned that they've performed exorcisms and miracles in the name of Jesus. They're good people, right? They're religious people, right? The story they inhabit seems to be that if you have the right theology, which, by the way, is really important, and if you dedicate at least a part of your life to religious service, you're going to be good with God. But Jesus looks at them, and surprisingly, he says, I never knew you. Now, that doesn't mean I was never aware that you existed. That's not what that means. I think that's pretty obvious. So, what does it mean? Well, commentators and historians uh, are agreed that basically what he means is you and I were never in a real and personal relationship. That's what it means. You and I didn't really know each other. In this true story that God is writing and that God is unfolding, it's all about relationship and a journey. We're on a journey with God and that journey of life is something that we do in relationship with God. It's not a relation, it's not about like a journey toward God, it's a journey with God. We have an illustration that uh, I use quite uh, frequently around here, and uh, it's, it's a contrast between what you might call uh, the way of most religions, if not all the religions in the world, and the way of Christianity. And the way of, of most religions or you might say the way that people oftentimes think about if they believe that there's a God and if they believe that there's eternal life with God, uh, what they think is, they think of this long journey, a difficult journey, of trying to be a good person, and if you could have the next uh, slide up here, trying to be a good person and trying to get to this door, and we finally, after a lifetime of, of working hard and, and trying, to, trying to be good and trying to be better maybe than the bad stuff that's in our lives, we get to the door, and we knock, and we hope that God will look in and say, you've been good enough, I'm going to let you in. But that's not Christianity. Christianity is about a journey with God, and it's about a door right at the beginning of that journey. And we enter through the door, not by proving ourselves, but we enter through the door by God's grace, unmerited favor toward us. That's what grace means. He has favor toward us, favor towards us, and it's completely unmerited. And by putting our faith in His merit, in what Jesus did, Jesus coming to this earth, dying on a cross for our sins, taking our place, and then rising, raising to life so that we can be raised to life, we go on this journey, we enter through that door by grace and by putting our faith and trust in Christ, as the Bible says, and then we walk through that difficult journey until that final day when we enter into the kingdom of heaven. Here's a second story that Jesus tells. It's in Matthew chapter 7, verse 24, and here's what he says. Therefore, based on what I've just said, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had built its foundations on the rock. 
But everyone who hears these words of mine, he's referring to the sermon that he's just given, the Sermon on the Mount, who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice, is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. Again, two people, and you have two homes. That on the outside, as you look at these homes, they look, they could be identical, and equally, they could be equally impressive, but they're not the same. The foundations are different. And the only thing that will reveal the difference is a storm. So you can imagine the Apostle Peter who hears this sermon that Jesus gives because he's teaching his disciples. You can imagine the Apostle Peter thinking of this story when he's writing to a group of Christians in his first epistle in 1 Peter. He's writing to a group of Christians who are experiencing storms in life. They're experiencing persecution for their faith. They're suffering because you can't live in this world without experiencing suffering. And this is what Peter, Peter says. He says, in all this you greatly rejoice, in all this suffering, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all, these kind, in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexplicable and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. The storm, in this case, he uses the image of a fire, tests the genuineness of a person's faith and actually proves the genuineness of a person's faith. And notice what it says in verse 8. He talks about three marks of genuine faith. And the first one is love for God. That's the relationship. It's love for God, not just duty, not ministry, not just obedience, not just service. Actually, love. That's a personal knowing, a relational connection with God. The second mark of genuine faith in this passage is believing in Christ. And that means trusting Him. So the the second mark is trusting Christ. So you have a relationship connection of love, and, and then you trust Christ. And then the third mark is being filled with an, inexplicable, an inexpressible and glorious joy. All as a result of testing, of suffering. All as a result of a crisis. In Jesus' story, one man builds on the foundation of Christ's teaching. The kind of teaching you find in the Sermon on the Mount. On the other, you, the other man, the other one, presumably doesn't build on that. So Smith, <clears throat> James Ryan Smith, he tells the story of another successful man. This one was also born in 1910. A man who Smith got to spend a, an afternoon with. This other man was John Wooden, the legendary UCLA basketball coach. He's pictured here at the age of 96. He won in his, uh, when he was coaching, he won 10 NCAA basketball championships. The next coach on that list, winningest coach, has won five. 
He coached some of the greatest NBA players. Most of them stayed in great contact with him and were constantly going to him because they wanted to gather more wisdom for life from him. He's also known for his philosophy of coaching, his practices in coaching, and is considered by a lot of people to be the greatest coach that ever lived in any sport, period, the greatest coach. Well, Smith got to spend a good part of an afternoon in conversation uh, with Wooden. And in that afternoon, Smith asked Wooden, what, in your opinion, is the secret to life? Wooden said, Jim, I made up my mind in 1935, which is an interesting connection uh, with Ben Jacobs' story. I made up my mind in 1935 to, to live by a set of principles, and I never wavered from them. They are based on the Bible and the teaching of Jesus. Principles like courage and honesty and hard work, character and loyalty and virtue and honor, these are what constitutes a good life. So Smith is writing furiously, trying to get everything that Wooden says in that three-hour conversation. And, and Wooden was talking about a lot of the kinds of things that maybe you've heard of. Why it was on the first day of practice he would teach his athletes, these top Division I athletes, he would teach them how to tie their shoes. He explained why he did that. He explained why it was that he would teach his students to always point at the player that had assisted them in a score, to just make that point about belonging as a team. It was in UCLA that that, that practice originated, a pointing to the person who had assisted you. He taught his players to be honest and hardworking, and he taught them that little things add up, and they add up to become big things. Wooden lived an amazing life. And Smith writes, his love for his deceased wife and for Jesus seemed to just fill the room. And he said he was ready to move on. He was ready to go be with Jesus and be reunited with his wife. Two men born the same year, Ben Jacobs and John Wooden. Smith writes this. He says, they lived through the same century, witnessed the Depression, two world wars, economic suffering and prosperity, and over a dozen presidents. They lived in the same country, though on different coasts. Neither one started out with a greater or lesser advantage over the other, yet the differences in their lives were stark. What was the difference? Ben had lived his life under an illusion, a false story about life and happiness, which ruined his life. When I met him, he was living his final days in fear of death. John, on the other hand, arranged his life around truth, around the teachings of Jesus, an accurate story about what constitutes a good life. By following that storyline, he had lived a glorious life. He was content and looking forward to a radiant future with Christ. Ben built a life on shifting sand. John built his life on the strong rock of Jesus. One of these men looked at how Jesus said to live, if he ever looked at all, and he probably would have thought in his mind, that's a ridiculous way to live. Too complicated, too soft, sounds like a loser's way to live. A lot like the story that I told in, I think it was the first week of this series, Michael Wilkins, how um, he had been a successful and popular athlete in high school. And it was in high school that when his Sunday school teacher was teaching the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, he listened and he just thought, that is the craziest way to live. That is just absolutely a loser way of life. 
And yet you fast forward, he's in Vietnam. It's been an incredible day of fighting. He's watched all kinds of his friends fall under hails of bullets. They were under his leadership. And he's broken. And he's understanding for the first time the kind of humility and spiritual brokenness that Jesus says is a blessed kind of brokenness, a blessed life. The other man looked how Jesus said to live, and he thought, this reveals how to live a good and beautiful life. And to fail to live this way, it's not going to end well. And so, to change the metaphor just for a minute from story to the metaphor of a map, these men live by different maps. It's been said, if a map doesn't agree with the ground, the map is wrong. I think I may have the ground is wrong. (laughs) The map is wrong. If the map doesn't agree with the ground, the map is wrong. It's the same with the story that's in your mind. If the story doesn't agree with God's story, which is the accurate story, your story is wrong. James Bryan Smith writes this, he says, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is not demanding we live his way in order to get his blessing or get into heaven when we die. He is simply telling the truth about our reality. It's never too late to start living with Jesus and his way, uh, living in a relationship with him. It's never too late to start. The kind of life where he was going to say to you, I know you, because you entered that door of his grace by putting your faith in him, and you've traveled with him on your journey. In one of his almost daily conversations with Ben Jacobs over that summer, Smith pointed Jacobs to Jesus, and then he kept pointing Jacobs to Jesus. But Jacobs said it was too late for him. He had messed up his life, and he was beyond redemption, to which Smith's response was, God's favorite activity is redemption. And it doesn't matter how old you are or how far away you are from God or what you've ever done. And that started them reading the Gospels together and talking about God's grace and forgiveness and about the personal transformation that God brings into our lives, the kind that only God can bring in our lives. At the end of the summer, Jacobs told Smith that he had decided to follow Jesus. And he had asked for forgiveness from God, and he felt that God had forgiven him. And he actually showed Smith a letter that he was going to send to his daughter asking for her forgiveness. The last time he heard about Ben came many years later when his daughter wrote him and and told James Bryan Smith that Ben Jacobs had died at the age of 88. She said that they had reconciled, that Ben had lived his faith all the way to the end. She said he had spent the last years of his life as a changed man, and she said that her dad had told her about the summer sessions they had had together and how appreciative he was of Smith. James Bryan Smith writes, Ben did not live a radiant life, at least for the first 75 years, but he was transformed and experienced a decade of devotion to God. According to his daughter, Ben died a radiant death. Ben's life changed when he got out of the whirlwind that creates the illusion that all is well and that his story is sound. He had time to reflect, and thankfully, he had James Bryan Smith in his life to reflect with. 
This is right now a great time to reflect on the story that we think that we inhabit. It's a great time to become more familiar with God's story, the, the one that actually does conform to reality. We're going to be offering as a church, we're going to, as we normally do, but in different ways, we're going to be offering all kinds of resources for doing that, for reflecting on our stories within God's story uh, over the next few weeks. For some, it might be a time to investigate God's story. It might be you who needs to investigate God's story. I've offered a few avenues for that in the outline that you can uh, download at our website. Um, and there, uh, on that page, there will also find some, some videos possi possibly that you can, you can watch. But most importantly, do you have a James Brian Smith in your life? Someone who's been pointing you to Jesus? Someone that can walk with you through your questions and possibly your doubts? There's probably a lot you don't even know or understand about Jesus and the life that he offers. There would be people that are willing to walk with you. For some, this might be a time to begin a relationship with Jesus. We do that by putting our trust in him for our salvation and asking him to be our God and leader and forgiver. If you don't have a James Brian Smith in your life, um, my email address is on that outline, and you can email me, and I can send you. There's also some resources there, and we can begin a conversation about that. This passage should cause all of us who say that we follow Jesus, who cry out, Lord, Lord, to, to look at whether we actually do know him personally. Maybe you've grown up in a Christian home and your faith is really just something that you depend on. You feel you're covered because your parents have got you, have got you covered in one way or another. But maybe you've never made a decision to follow Jesus for yourself, to begin a personal relationship with him. And maybe time, it's time now for you to do that. To, to not just be involved in faith because your family is, but to begin a personal relationship with God. Take time to reflect on Jesus' teaching during this time, on the gospel that Jesus preached, and on life. Grow to live the story of God, the real story, the better story that he's calling us to live within. Let the story that we have in our minds more and more reflect the reality of the story that God is unfolding. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you that you are a God who reveals himself to us and has revealed himself in his word and has especially revealed himself in the cross and in the resurrection. We're coming close to that time when we focus on that and in our Lent services, we're focusing on getting ready for the cross and the resurrection. And Father, during this season we have, where we have time to reflect, I pray that we would reflect on its meaning and I pray that we would more and more live its meaning in our hearts. Work in our hearts, work in our minds. Help us to be James Brian Smiths in the life, lives of, of maybe Ben Jacobs that reach out for some direction and some help. Help us to point people towards you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's continue uh, our...
worship by responding to God over these next few moments.